0: You know, I just uh I was up in the children's ministry before I uh came down and I don't know if you know this but they're go they're teaching the same thing we are going through. So every week they're going and hitting the same chapter we're going through. So they're doing Genesis 7 and so I asked the teachers, you know, what the Lord shows them and of course they give me a cheat sheet cuz I get to hear what the Lord's shared with them. Um but the one thing that i i expressed to them was this isn't a children's story we're talking about a cataclysmic flood we're talking about events where lives were taken and yet how many how many churches sanitize the story and it's a, it, it was a time where god destroyed the whole world so With that, let's go ahead and read Genesis 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, male and his female, Also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah with his sons, his wife and his son's wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Aren't you glad that God is the one who brought the animal? I'm sure Noah is happy he did all the work because what a monumental task. verse 10. And it came to pass after seven days, the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, And Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them enter the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Notice that. We'll we'll, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth. And the ark moved about on the surface of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. And all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. And so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and and cattle, creeping thing, and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Incredible, incredible story presented before us. You know, um, i got a little question for you. So how many animals did Moses take into the ark? The trick question. Zero. It was Noah. Anyway, just he was paying attention here. Okay. You guys are a tough crowd tonight. What's going on here? All right. Um, well, I do have a story for you. Uh, one day on the outskirts of a small town, there was this big old pecan tree just inside the cemetery fence. And two boys happened to be filling a bucket of nuts as they sat by the tree. Tucked out of sight. And they could be heard dividing the nuts. One for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. And as they were counting, one of the buckets tipped over and several of the nuts rolled down towards the fence. Meanwhile, as they were counting, another boy came right along on the road with his bicycle. And as as he was passing, he, he heard voices coming from the cemetery and being inquisitive he made his way over there and he started to investigate. And sure enough, he heard one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. And he knew what it was. He jumped back on his bike and tore off towards town. And just as he came around the bend, he met an old man with a cane, huffing and puffing. He said, sir, sir, you got to come with me. You won't believe what I heard. What is it you've heard? He goes, I've heard Satan and the Lord dividing the souls. He says, beat it, kid. Can't you see it's hard for me to walk? But the boy kept insisting, you got to come. You got to come. And so finally the man caved in. And he hobbles towards the cemetery. And as he approached the fence, there he heard, one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. The old man whispered to the kid, kid, you're telling the truth. You've been telling the truth the whole time. Well, well, let's see if we can see the Lord. So, shaking from fear, they peered through the fence, hoping to get a glimpse. The old man and the boy gripped the, the wrought iron bars really tight, and they're trying to get a glimpse of the Lord, and then they hear, One for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. And then they stop and go, Oh, that's it. Uh... Let's go over to the nuts by the fence and uh, we'll be done. Well, needs to say, that old man was back in town five minutes ahead of the boy on the bike. The nuts by the fence. Judgment, man. Inevitably, it's going to come. You just hope you're in the right bucket. Noah didn't have that kind of fear. He didn't have to run. He was on the right side. And here in verse 1, the time has come for Noah to enter the ark. It says, then the Lord said to Noah, come, come into the ark, you and your household. The Hebrew for the word come carries the idea of entering in, to come in or to come upon but sometimes, depending on the context, it means to invite, to bid, to beckon. And I, I'm of the opinion that I could just see the Lord inside the ark. He's telling Noah, come in. Notice he's not on the outside saying, hey, go in. He's saying, come in. And, that, and I, I like that picture because I like to think that it's the Lord who's bidding us to come in. And what a picture uh, set before us that the God of the universe is bidding us to come in. He's doing the same thing today. He's saying, come, come in. And then he says, you are righteous before me in this generation. And we sit here and we can awe at that truth that Noah is righteous before God. Even after 600 years, God says that of him. But if you, think about, if you think about that, so are we, aren't we? You know, we look at Noah and we go, man, righteous. We don't know his life because we weren't there, but God says he is righteous. And when I read about Noah and men like that, you go, man, there's something or quality about them. I wish I was like, there has to be something unique. Something you almost envy because you know your sinful propensity but we're righteous too. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We too are righteous. Well, Fernando, I don't feel righteous. Well, you don't have to feel righteous. You just need to know that you are righteous by virtue of His righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness. It's nothing that you and I can do. It's not something that we can achieve. It's all Him. He's the one who's done it on our behalf. And I'm glad. I'm glad that I don't have to work for this righteousness because you and I would fail miserably because we fail. We were weak. He says, you shall take with you seven, each of every clean animal, a male and his female to each of the animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also seven, each of the birds of the air, male and female to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. Notice seven of every clean animal, Leviticus lists for us seven clean animals, but we don't get those animals until we get to Leviticus. Don't you find that interesting? God had revealed this to him. So evidently, God had revealed to Noah what these animals were. Even then, even then, God was demonstrating what was acceptable and what wasn't. Now, though Moses authored Genesis, and he could by inference speak from the standpoint of what was common knowledge for the Jew... But obviously Noah understood what these animals were. He was to take seven of every clean animal and the rest were to come in pairs of twos to preserve their lives. You know, when you think about all the animals that were saved, obviously there are some animals that are extinct. I could think of a couple I wish that were extinct. Rats specifically. But I know they all serve a purpose, don't they? Notice in verse 4, he says, For seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Rain? What's rain? We have the luxury of knowing and experiencing rain. As a matter of fact, here in the state of California, we're experiencing a drought, right? You know, and we pray for rain. But in Noah's day, they had never seen rain. What was that? And what was that like? Rain is going to fall from the sky. There's going to be water that's going to fall from the sky. They never seen it, nor have they ever experienced it. And I mean, if you think about the hydraulic cycle, I was thinking about this the other day, it's a pretty incredible process. You take a body of salt water, it evaporates and it rises to the sky, forms clouds, goes over land, and drops water. You go, oh, it's pretty simple. But think about that. That never happened before. It's an incredible process because it starts off as salt water, but what does it become? Fresh water. That to me, I marvel at that. Believe it or not, I marvel at that. But furthermore, how much water is up there? You carry a couple of gallons of water. It's heavy. And yet these clouds transport a large amount body of water. That's God's design. Only God can do that. You know, a scientist can sit here and diagram it for you and say, it's simple. It still has to be done. And no one does it. God does it. He's created the process. Again, but in Noah's day, what's that? I wonder if there are clouds that just never gave water. I don't know never rained before. Why? Well, it tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, that it never rained and God had caused a mist to emit from the ground. I wish that were the same today. I'd like to have mist just come from the ground. I don't have to worry about watering my yard. And I'm sure they had conversations. You know, hey, Dad, Dad, how's it going to rain? Mom, 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 how, how's that, how's that going to happen? That water's going to come from the sky. You can imagine Noah's kids. I mean, no one's talking about judgment. It's gonna, it's gonna rain, but what is that, Dad? You know, cloudy with a chance of meatballs. What is that? Is it gonna come down? I mean, what's gonna come down? What about the critic in that day? What do you mean, old man? It's gonna rain. You know, he goes down to his local Sprouts and sees people, and he talks to them about judgment. What are you talking about? He's a loon. Water from the sky sounds like fiction to me. What was it like for his wife and children to go through? You ever think about that? Did they lose friendships? Did they get ridiculed? Did they struggle trying to live godly in an ungodly world? If you're a parent, I think you understand what that, that feels like, don't you? You know, you get saved, you have kids, and then you see your kids growing up and you're trying to just embody to them what it is to be a Christian and then they experience the world. And you don't want them attached to the world, but we know we have to live here. And yet, we get it, don't we, as Christians. You know, before I came to the Lord, my friends were my family. We went everywhere together. We did everything together for years. I mean, literally for years. My, my parents weren't around. My mom worked two jobs. I barely saw her. My dad wasn't even in the picture. And so my friends became my family. And, you know, these are the type of friendships that I thought you'd only see in movies, you know. Uh, These lifelong friendships. And you thought, man, through thick and thin you'll be there. And then the moment comes when you hear the gospel. I heard the gospel. And by week's end, all my friends were gone. What's that? What happened? I lost all my friends. I didn't build an ark. I wasn't a preacher of righteousness. I didn't tell people it was going to rain. I just told them I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that was it. That's all they needed to hear. And yet this family lived for 120 years with that message. What was that like for them? And then we read, After seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And I will destroy... From the face of the earth, all living things that I have made. God takes responsibility. And this must have been an interesting moment for Noah. An interesting week for him to ponder. What would you do knowing that in seven days, everything that you know it, as you know it, was going to be destroyed? Notice, there are no questions from Noah. There's no personal petitions like, Lord, let me, let me go warn one more person. There's, no, there's silence. Nothing comes from Noah. Just obedience. That's what you read. Just obedience. He completed the ark, and I'm sure as, as he's reflective, he's reflective of the moment God had first instructed him to work on the ark. And here he is, as it were, 120 years later, Excuse me. After 120 years, the Lord begins to speak to him again. And this time he tells him to get in. And we're not told if, if he had spoken to Noah in those 120 years. We don't read anything of that. All we know is he gives him the instruction to build the ark, and then he tells them to come into the ark. But in seven days, everything as he knows it was going to change. Let me ask you a question. What would you do knowing with 100% certainty? Now, I know, I know, we don't know the day or the hour, but just follow along with me. If you knew for 100% 100 certainty that the world as you know it was going to be destroyed in seven days, or better yet, that you knew the rapture was going to occur, okay, your priorities would change instantly, wouldn't they? Man, you know, man, by week's end, we're getting out, God's going to, Huge liftoff. We're gone. Today, what would you do? What would, what would you start thinking about? What would your priorities be? I think they'd change instantly. Or would you waste time watching football, basketball, The Walking Dead? I mean, would you waste time going to the theater? Would you care about your house, your cars, your retirement accounts? Lord, I've never been able to conquer this drinking problem I've ever had. 7 days I'm coming. Oh man, I'm good now. Everything's right. I'm I'm cured. Why why would it have to take something like that to straighten me out? I need to live with priorities. All of a sudden those things which should have been priorities previously are priorities now. Isn't isn't that interesting? Would you go out and spend every nickel you had? No, I wouldn't do that. I, I'd max out my credit cards. Woo-hoo! Spend everything I had, right? Would you do that? You know, someone once said, the past exists in our memory, the future in our expectancy, and what we possess is the present. Mastering the ever-present moment means mastering life. And notice he says, and if you do not serve the Lord today... There is no guarantee that you will serve him tomorrow. Now think of Noah. You know, as I was thinking of Noah, and I was really, a, a, you know, you try to put yourself in his place. Noah had 600 years of memories. 600 years to contemplate over. He had 600 years of watching the world sink deeper and deeper into darkness. He had 600 years of observing the culture deteriorate before, he, before him. And yet, he found grace in the sight of the Lord. We read that in Genesis chapter 6. 600 years of memories, and in seven days, the rain was coming. Think of Noah's daughter-in-laws and what they must have thought. They had to have families, right? They all had mothers and fathers, and it's not unreasonable to think that they had brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts. And what was that like for them? joining the noah family i'm sure their family said man they're a bunch of quacks they're 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 on a whole new level and, and and you know i commend these women because they committed to their husbands you don't read of any of them saying you know what i want out you guys are you're crazy they stayed with their husbands they don't they're not running home to mommy and daddy and how many of their families believed How many were saved? Zero. Not one of them. Here's this 500-year-old man with his family building a vessel because he says God is going to destroy the world. And the way he's going to do it is he's going to cause rain to fall. Rain? Really, Mr. and Mrs. Noah? Do you believe that? Honey, who are you marrying? One of those Noah boys? Have you heard their message? They're going to be our in-laws? Now, I can imagine their family gatherings must have been pretty interesting. Here in the background, they're barbecuing and you can see the the ark. Centerpiece of conversation, I'm sure. I wonder if they walked around inside and showed him, hey, look what I'm building. What about Noah's uh, wife? What was that like for her? Could you imagine Noah first introducing this idea? You know, God spoke to me, and you know what? There's going to be a flood, and we've got to build this large boat. I mean, a really big one. Are you sure? You know, when your wife talks to you, know that tone of voice? Are you sure it's the Lord? But we have no mention of that. Good girl. Good girl. And Noah did, verse 5, according to all the Lord commanded him. Noah is 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah, the sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Notice Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. All. Obedience. Again, I wish I could be like Noah in many ways. I wish the Lord could say of me one day, you know, that, hey, he did all that I asked him to do. How many of us want that? I, I do. I want the Lord to say, that kid right there obeyed me in everything, but sadly I don't. I got to come to him every morning. I got to put on his mind to recalibrate mine, because if I don't, left unchecked, I do my own thing. And Noah and his family are—you know—they're in this chapter. They're mentioned multiple times throughout this chapter. But do you notice who's not mentioned? Those who are perishing. Do you find that interesting? They're not mentioned. Verse 8, Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. Noah and his family enter the ark. All of the animals, male and female, enter the ark. Do you realize that from the moment Noah and his family enters the ark until the time they disembark, they are on the ark 377 days? It's over a year. When they go into the ark, it's seven days before the rain comes. Another 370 days afloat. So that's a total of 377 days they're on this boat. It ain't the love boat. Okay? Okay? It's a rough barge. I wonder if they got seasick. It's one of those things in my mind. It's all, I think it's also worth mentioning here at this point that one of the criticisms made by atheists is obviously the room needed for the animals and also the food required to feed them. And I'll cover that in a few moments as I talk about the dimensions of the ark. Um, the dimensions of the ark. I'm sure probably Tony mentioned those things last week. Um, if we're basing it off the standard 18-inch cubit, you know, the Babylonian, the Persian cubit, they're all different. But if we're going off the biblical cubit, which is about 18 inches, it would have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It could have easily carried 522 boxcars. Now, bear in mind, again, that this was a barge. It wasn't meant to navigate... We don't read that there was a steering wheel or an oar. And also, it had a flat bottom. Again, it would have been easy to load all the animals. It wasn't made to navigate. It was solely meant to float. And again, what was that like for Noah and his sons as they built this thing? You know? What was it like for the brothers? You know what? It's your turn to go cut that tree. Your turn to go into town and get supplies. I don't want to go into town. Now we get ridiculed. I don't want to go there. What was that like for them? I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. You know, as again, I I began to think about the the size of the ark. And I thought, you know, how does this compare in relation to, let's say, the Titanic? Well, I I did some comparisons. Uh, Let me give you some of those stats. Well, cost... Unknown, because they had to cut down their own lumber. Um, The Titanic, if you're using today's value, it's about $400 million. Uh, Years to build, it took, no, 120 years. It took 37 months to build the Titanic. Number of people uh, required to build the ark, 8 to 4 people versus 15,000 people. Materials, well, the ark is made of wood and the Titanic made of metal. Length, 450 feet. The Titanic, 883 feet. Width, 75 feet for the ark, 92 feet for the Titanic. Height, 45 feet for the ark, 175 feet for the Titanic. Weight, uh, again, estimated tons, 4,100 tons for the ark, 21,831 tons for the Titanic. Ship's displacement, 24,300 tons for the ark. 66,000 tons for the Titanic. Top speed, zero knots for the Ark, 24 knots for the Titanic. Number of compasses, zero for the Ark, 18 for the Titanic. Number of propellers, the Ark had zero, the Titanic had three. Number of furnaces, zero for the Ark, 159 for the Titanic. Number of anchors, zero for the Ark three for the Titanic. Age of the captain, 600 years versus 59 years. Years of naval experience, Noah had zero. The Titanic's captain had 43 years. Length of the ship's maiden voyage, 370 days for the ark, four and a half days for the Titanic. Number of passengers, well, you had eight plus an estimated 125,000 animals versus 2,228 people and one cat. Survivors, eight people plus 125,000 animals versus 705 people. The biggest stat, percentage of passengers that survived or that were saved. The Ark, 100%. The Titanic, 32%. Interesting, huh? God's design versus man's design. What about the animals? You know, scientists have intimated that that you can have easily placed over eighteen thousand species into the ark. I mean, if you if you look at you know if you compare them to the size of sheep or goats, you'd have enough space for one hundred twenty five thousand of them. When they've looked at the species of the world, they estimate that most of those animals in the world are around their size. Obviously, there's some larger and some smaller. They also said if you took two of every species then all you would need is 150 boxcars, and you still have room for 372 boxcars on the ark. Folks, this is a huge vessel with enough space for animals and supplies. And you have to understand, as we look at history, up to the modern advent of vessels that were powered by heat, there wasn't a vessel of this magnitude ever. Not the Persians, not the Phoenicians. They never built anything this large. Verse eleven, it says, "In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened." Interesting. So it's not only that rain that comes down. If you get, I mean, if you get a chance pick up dr Walt Brown's book in the beginning in it he goes through great lengths detailing the evidence of the flood you know um, I've had a great I've had a great pleasure corresponding with uh, dr. Walt Brown through the years he's a great guy you know I, I we've had some great discussions and if you get a chance get his book but he theorizes that wor- worldwide there are these interconnected subterranean water chambers and when these erupted it had the energy release of 300 trillion hydrogen bombs i don't know what that's like i mean a gun goes off i think that's pretty powerful you're talking about 300 trillion hydrogen bombs Consequently, it resulted in fractures that traveled across the surface of the earth at a rate of three miles a second. The crack, following the path of least resistance, circled the earth within two hours. The weight of the rock strata, as it compressed on these water chambers, would cause the waters to shoot through the cracks with such pressure that it jetted up supersonically upwards about 20 miles into the atmosphere. Think about that, folks. A wall of not just geysers. Sometimes we think of, oh, just these geysers. No, walls of water going 20 miles into the air. And that water is coming back down. So you have that happening with the rain. And the water is jetting through at such a high pressure that it erodes the soil where the water is jetting through. It's Similar to, let's say, your pipe in your yard, when it bursts, it's not a clean hole. You, you see the soil as it's eroded. Well, that's exactly what happens here. These ridges are, are covered by the ocean's water. So if you, could, if you could take off, you know, if you could remove the, the, the ocean water and you could see uh, the ground below, you would find these ridges that, like you'd find on a basketball. Okay, And they, they go all over the world. Again, this had to be an incredible event. Land masses eroding away as water is jetting upwards, causing the land to slide back at a rate of 45 miles an hour. And as this land is sliding back, so you have this jet, as the land is sliding back at 45 miles an hour, it eventually hits resistance. And the land becomes like an accordion. You create the mountains. As it, as it rises, it also causes a seashelf in exact proportion. You can go around the world and you can see these mountains and as you go into the ocean, you have the same divots. It's all in proportion. Again, a remarkable event. This was an incredible upheaval. The Scripture says, all the fountains of the great deep were broken and the windows of heaven were opened. It begins to rain. Not only do you have these jets piercing the rock strata, showering down enormous amounts of water, but it begins to rain, and it doesn't stop raining. It says, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. What was that like for Noah, listing back and forth in the ark as it it continued to downpour upon them? I, I can only imagine that they had a sense of relief. Well, what do you mean? Well, think about this they could have rejected the message right as they're sitting there in the ark this thing's going back and forth you're safe you're you're protected everyone's gone and i don't know about you but there are times when i'm sitting in my you know in my my time of just meditating and just thinking about the lord and what he's done for me i think i've been saved from a lot even now I accepted the message. I could have potentially rejected the message, and I didn't. And I'm sure as they're sitting in the ark, they're thinking about that. They're thinking, "Man, we could have, we had the potential to reject, and we didn't." And it's not because we're smart. We just decided to make that decision. And I'm sure they're thinking that. And it says here in verse 13, on the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord, the Lord, shut him in. Why would the Lord shut him in? Was there a potential for Noah to open the door? Let me in. It's me. It's your neighbor. Let me in. Was there that potential? That's a hard thing to fight, isn't it? Because you'd want to. And sometimes we want to be more gracious than God, don't we? We feel like, well, come on, God. I mean, now they want to commit. They're not responding to the message. They're responding because they want to save their lives. Now some would argue and say, if God is a God of love, then why would He not open the door? Why wouldn't He? The answer is He gave them 120 years to repent. Noah had finished his ministry. God knows what that line is. I don't know where that line is drawn or when He draws it, but He does. And At a certain point, though we know God is a God of love, He is also a God of justice. To me, it's interesting how the how an atheist can argue and say, if, if God is a God of love, then why does He allow evil to occur? Why does He? Why does He allow it to happen? And then, the moment you talk to them about the day that God's going to judge the world, and He's going to ask everyone to give an account for their lives, what is their reaction? Well, God's going to judge the bad people. I'm, I'm a good person. I've done nothing wrong. Well, wait a minute. Maybe you're so distorted and deceived that he's been trying to reveal to you the whole time that you are one of those bad people. But you're lost in your sin, you're blind. And he's been doing that for 120 years. He's been doing that for how long now? You want to see man at his best? You want to see a picture of man? Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 verse 9. He says, "What then are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under what? Sin. Jews and Greeks, don't matter. Everybody, all sinners." As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. It's a cemetery there. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. Do you ever tell a lie? For your benefit? To get your way? The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in all their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's to me a picture of man. It's an act, it, to me it's an accurate portrayal of who we are as people. We're no good, and the world at that point was full of these type of people, as the world we live in today. There's none good. You know, I shared with you guys up at the men's retreat. You know, speaking to this lady, and she she just I've never met a woman like this. That she she felt like I've done I've never done anything wrong, and that began to out you know just basically outline every area of her life. At the end, I said, ma'am, you're just not good. And she just couldn't, she didn't have a response. Because when you begin to chip away and you really begin to peel off the layers, you realize I'm not that good. There's the enemy within. And if you're honest with yourself, you realize I'm really not that good. Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade away as a leaf, and our iniquities, our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. That's 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 it for us, folks. We're no good. My friends, man has been the same from the beginning. He hasn't evolved, he is the same from the moment he fell. It's in our DNA. And the root cause is sin. So at a certain point, God gives each and every one each one of us an opportunity to repent. Just opportunity after opportunity, after opportunity. But then there comes a time when that opportunity no longer exists, and God shuts the door and we can't open it. It's too late. Tonight in eternity, every one of those folks who died in the flood are in hell. They are more alive today than you and I can ever think, and as they're in hell, I can only imagine in their mind's eye, they can recall the message. They can recall Noah's warning and they're rejected. And I wonder, you know in Luke chapter 11, we know the story where Lazarus dies, right? And we know after a few days, Jesus resurrects him, right? And where was he those days that he was dead? Well, we look at Luke 16. He had to be in the bosom of Abraham, correct? And I wonder. I, I really believe Lazarus was more alive then than he was on earth. Because I'm sure he saw things that you and I just wish to see. I wonder if he saw Moses. I wonder if he saw Adam. I wonder if he saw Noah. Because he's alive. And I wonder if Noah being there saw all the people that passed away in the flood. Crazy. The Lord shut him in. Notice verse 17. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. 15 cubits above the mountains. Just enough space for the ark to clear without hitting the bottom and grounding out. Again, we don't know exactly the path in which the ark traveled. However, the point in the Scripture is... It's being exact. It's being specific. It's telling us how high the water rose in relation to the draft line of the ark. You know, most people don't realize the volume of water on earth is 10 times greater than the volume of land above sea level. So, What are you saying? Well, okay, for example, if you took all the land on the earth right now and flattened it out, and you put all that water back in, we would be 9,000 feet below sea level. That's how much water there is. Well, I'll ask you another question. What happened to all the water from the flood? It's still here. It's still here. Three quarters of the world is water. That flood water is still here, it's all around us. You know, then you have some people who say this is a local flood. And and if it was a local flood, then there's no sense of building an ark, is there? Noah could have just easily moved. If it was a localized flood, then the suggestion is it only rained in one specific area. No, folks, this was a flood where a vessel ended up resting on a mountain range 17,000 feet high. This was a major, major catastrophic event. You know, archaeologists have unearthed fossils where their bodies are contorted and positioned as if they had been in a washing machine. You can go up to some of the highest mountain peaks, and there in the soil they've found oceanic life, seashells everywhere. How did it get there? In Siberia, there's elephants and rhinoceroses that they have discovered in great masses mixed together with marine substances, with food still in their mouth. Vegetation, tropical vegetation in Siberia of all places. You know, what I found interesting is, you know, Noah didn't build multiple vessels, did he? He only built one. He built only one. And to me, it's interesting because the scripture says there's only one way. doesn't make multiple ways. He makes only one way possible. You know, you can go to different parts of the world And most ancient civilizations, they have a flood story recorded for us. There's 230 stories, ancient civilizations, that record a flood. Do you know in the classic Chinese, uh, they use pictographs for their vocabulary. And the ancient word for boat is composed of the symbol for vessel, the number eight, and looks like the square, which is a pictograph of a person. So they have all three together, a vessel, the number eight, and the symbol of a man. Why would the ancient Chinese refer to a boat as an eight-person vessel? That's the picture for boat for them. You find that interesting? Yet the critics will marginalize these ancient people as superstitious or that they're ignorant because science, of course, has it all figured out. You know, I happen to think that one day the ark will materialize. And it will be the real thing. The problem is, even though the natural man will be faced with the evidence, because of the hardness of their hearts, they still won't believe. Ah, so what? A bunch of people built it. They're superstitious. It ain't going to matter, is it? You know, there's there's around the world, ancient, I mean... Sights with evidence. They still don't believe. So if they saw the ark, it wouldn't matter to them. You know, in John 20, verse 29, it says, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't need to see an ark to believe. I have the revelation of Scripture that it happened. That's all I need. And again, only God can do this. He gave the blueprint to Noah. And I can only imagine how Noah reacted when he examined it. Here here he has the, the blueprint to build the ark. And God told Noah in the previous chapter that the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And that's in Genesis chapter 6. And they had 120 years before it would happen. They had 120 years. They knew. 120 years for Noah not only to build the ark, but to preach, to warn of a judgment to come. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, And he spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person. And what was he? A preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. A world filled of ungodly people. And in those 120 years, Noah did not have one convert. Not one. No one who said, hey, hey, Noah, I believe your message. Not No one had repented upon hearing the message. Now, was there something wrong with Noah? Or with the way he presented the message? Or was it the message itself? No. It was a heart. It was a heart of man. They were altogether corrupt. And I wonder how many of those people who lived in Noah's day thought they were okay with God. You know, there are some of you today sitting in this auditorium thinking, you're okay with God. You come here and you feel comforted because there's people that like you here. And you think, you know what? I'm, I'm okay. But you go home and you're a different person. You're into things that you shouldn't be in. And you ought not to be. And you, sh- you need to get right. I wonder how many of those people felt that way in Noah's day. Ah, he's just a kook building his boat, but I'm Okay. How many of them were religious? Maybe that Noah was too extreme, that he was unloving because he said, hey, your homosexuality is an offense to God. Or you're drinking. Or you're fornicating. You're having sex outside of marriage. You're divorcing the wives of your youth. he didn't like to hear that. He was a preacher of righteousness. He wasn't, he wasn't sugarcoating it, gang. Maybe they couldn't agree with God that they were, in fact, sinners. Yeah, I I, I know, and I get it. I know it's not a popular message, but it was a message of warning nonetheless. You know, Jesus believed in Noah, didn't he? What did he say in Luke 17, verse 26? And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. It was business as usual. And what was Jesus making reference to? He was making reference to judgment that occurred in the beginning. And he's saying there's a judgment to come, just as in days of Noah. That, that tells me that uh, I have to assume that what was going on in their day, is it it's happening in ours. It's nothing new. We're made of the same stuff. We're no different. I'm sure that they had the same immorality, the licentious living, idolatry. It was all occurring now, as it was occurring then. But you know what I found interesting? Noah wasn't surrounded by a church as we know it. He didn't have pastors to confer with. He didn't have church leadership or elders to resort to. He didn't have an, a complete New Testament. Heck, he didn't even have the Old Testament, and yet he was still godly. He was still a preacher of righteousness. And we get so hung up. He said, "What if I only had this, then I could live right?" No, you don't need anything else. If anything, you have enough. You have this. This is all you need. You don't need psychotherapy. You, 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 that's all junk. You have the Word of God to to carry you in your life, to bring peace to your mind and your heart. For you to lead your home and direct your children. I don't need all the junk. He obeyed God. Hebrews eleven seven tells us by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. He hadn't seen those things yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became heirs of the righteousness which is by faith. Notice the verse begins with faith and ends with faith. Don't you want your life to start that way? That you start with faith and end with faith? What if God told you? Again, I'm going to challenge you guys. I'm going to destroy the world as you know it. I'm going to use an energy bolt from space with the ability to microwave every person on the face of the planet over the course of 40 days. So here's the plan. What you're going to do is you're going to go excavate Mount Wilson and you're going to build a bunker to shield you from the light and radiation that will follow. And the bunker is going to be the size of the Coliseum in downtown L.A. I'm also going to send to you a pair of every species on the face of the planet so I can preserve their lives. And after the fallout, you're going to have 120 years before any of this will happen. So he's going to give you a day. He says, you know what? You start tomorrow. You're going to have 120 years to accomplish that. I want you to excavate Mount Wilson and build a bunker, tuck away those animals, and I'm going to protect your family. And here's the most important part. Now I'm only going to save you, but I want you to tell people the judgment to come because I love people. But I'm also going to protect you. He does the same for us. They need to repent. But all they have to do is agree. Agree with me that they're sinners. Now, I think down deep inside, as corny as his example is, I want to feel like I passed that test. If God had told me to do that, if he spoke to me and said I need to do those things, I want to feel like I would pass that test. All right, Lord, 120 years. All right, well, that's, if that's what it's going to take, I would hope I would be able to do that. Some of us will say, 120 years. That's a long time. And yet he says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God for the things not seen as of yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Think about it. You get saved, as it were. You hear the message that Jesus Christ is coming quickly. I mean, the book of Revelation tells us, tells us that, doesn't it? Behold, I come quickly. But as believers, you get a few years under your belt. You so to get comfortable. You go, oh, maybe he's not coming today. Maybe he's not coming this week. Uh, maybe not next month. Maybe not next year. And then you begin to ponder. Maybe I can live in sin. Maybe I can enjoy sin just a little bit. I mean, I look at the world around me, and I mean, they're going full bore. I just, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Maybe I don't have to be extreme as Noah. I don't have to be so extreme. Folks, he says, by faith, Noah was moved. That's the key. He believed God by faith. He was warned of God, of things not as yet seen. He was moved with fear. He didn't go drinking. He didn't go look at pornography. He didn't go fornicate and build the ark. Okay? He didn't have one foot in the world, and he was building the ark. He was moved with fear. He moved by faith. I have a strange suspicion that if the Lord had told him it was going to be 220 years, 320 years, I think you would have still had the same outcome. You may only have 10 years. Can you live to that potential? If the Lord said, okay, you know, hey, Fernando, you got 40 years. Can I live 40 years faithfully into Him? By faith. And that's the key. Well, I have a family to raise. So did Noah. I'm ready to retire. Well, so was Noah. He was 500 years old. If anybody had the opportunity to retire, be him, or complain. But he didn't. The problem is, what are your priorities? How are you going to live? The Bible tells us the last days will be marked just as the days of Noah. And we're told to be watchful for the Son of Man comes at an hour we know not of. What an incredible man Noah was. He wasn't perfect. We know that. You can read uh, chapter 9, verse 20, because it tells us after the flood, he took up farming, he planted a vineyard, and he began to sip, and he got drunk. He was uncovered in his tent. We'll save that for another study. A little too much alcohol, folks. It'll taint your view of life. It'll mess you up. It'll hang you up. Verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And this is what I found really sad. And every man. You know, I really, this verse really bothered me. You know, there's some verses that really hit home for you. This one really bothered me. Because as I mentioned to the teachers upstairs, this event was horrific. I'm sure you had women who were pregnant, babies died, women died, men died. People that you would go, those are nice people, but people who nonetheless rejected. And it says that every man died. What a sad commentary. The history of mankind. And I you know, a side you note, know, I think one of the reasons God caused it to rain because we know that He used the waters to kill man. But I think one of the reasons also is to kill all the birds. Because you have ducks and seagulls that they could tread water. Not with rain. Not with that much water. It killed everything. That water came down at such a, a rate, it, it just destroyed everything. Nothing would stay afloat. Verse 22. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, the spirit of life, All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which are on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with them in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Notice everything died, and only Noah and his family and the animals in the ark survived. That's it. The whole world went out. Everything died. Notice also the waters prevailed in the earth. That means the waters reached a certain level and maintained that level for 150 days before it began to subside. Now, if you're here tonight and all this sounds like the babblings of some ignorant man or these are the writings passed down from lunatics, hey, that's your opinion. I get it. It doesn't diminish the fact that over 230 ancient civilizations record for us a global catastrophic flood. You can't get away from that. To me, that's interesting because you can go to any part of the world and you're going to get that. Whether you're in Mexico, Iran, China, it makes no difference. You're going to find the flood story. And what does it speak of? Again, God's judgment. And it's coming. I just found this story before I came up. And it kind, of, it kind of puts things in perspective for me. Uh, Michael Borgart, he wrote for the National Geographic magazine in, in May of 1984. And he showed through a series of color photos, drawings of the swift and terrible destruction that wiped out Roman cities of Pompeii in A.D. 79. The explosion of Mount Vesuvius was so sudden, the residents were killed while in their routine. Notice that. While they were doing their day to day affairs, no one expected this to happen. Men and women were at the market, the rich in, the, in their luxurious baths, slaves at toil. They died amid volcanic ash and superheated gases. Even family pets suffered the same quick and final fate. It takes little imagination to picture the panic of that terrible day. The saddest part is that these people did not have to die. Scientists confirm what ancient Roman writers record. Weeks of rumblings and shakings preceded the actual explosion. And when you begin to think about that, I think you guys get the picture. They didn't have to go through that. They didn't have to experience the devastation that would come. Because the warnings were there, the signs were there. They could have avoided it. Much the same way we avoid the future judgment to come. You know, uh, when you look at the ark, when Noah entered the ark, seven days were going to pass and then the flood was going to come. Do you realize when the rapture occurs where we're going to be? We're going to be in heaven with him for seven years. Safely tucked away, sheltered, while the world is going to experience judgment. Interesting parallel. Interesting parallel. We're going to be in the ark, his ark in heaven. Interesting. And to me, it's just, again, the signs are there. Now, the good news for us, folks, is God is not calling you to build an ark. I'm positive. I guarantee it. He told us he would never again destroy the world with water. Now, fire is another issue, but he's not going to destroy it with water. We don't have to spend the next 120 years building a barge. We don't have to explain what rain is. But what we do have to do is tell folks about the ark, Jesus Christ, and the judgment that is coming. He is the door, and he is the ark of our salvation. He's ready to save. And that judgment is coming, and it's going to rain destruction. And we don't have to end up like those people, and neither do they. God wants to use you. He wants to use your lives. You're going to be used in areas that obviously I I couldn't. You have friends, relatives. You have a sphere of influence. I would never have. But God wants to use you. You say, well, I'm not very articulate. You heard my study. Neither am I. Our lives are a witness. People want to know what makes you tick. Why are you so different? Why don't you laugh at the same jokes that they laugh at? Why don't you hang out the same bars that they hang out at? Why don't you smoke? Why don't you cuss? And if you do, then why? you no different. What makes you different then? It works both ways. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you again in Jesus' name. And, Lord, we thank you for just this chapter, Lord. Lord, um, how you tell us, Lord, there's judgment to come. And, Lord, not that you desire judgment, but you are a God of justice. And, Lord, you desire, Lord, to reclaim us. And you love people. And, Lord, we pray, Lord, that as we go out and we proclaim the truth, Lord, that we would do it in a way that honors you, Lord. Lord, that we too can walk by faith and end our lives by faith. If you're here tonight and you don't know, Lord, maybe you're not right with the Lord. I'm going to pray right now and you can just pray that's in your heart and just ask the Lord to come in. It's just a prayer of faith. Just repeat after me, father, I come to you in Jesus name. I acknowledge Lord. I am a sinner and I'm lost without you. I understand your son Christ died for my sins For me personally. And you offer that forgiveness. And Lord, I pray you cleanse me of my sin. I believe your son died and rose again for me. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.